Hello, and welcome to the PCA Church Leader Podcast, brought to you by the PCA Retirement and Benefits. On this podcast, we talk with a number of church leaders, pastors, elders, women's ministry leaders, administrators, campus ministers, and more. We discuss practical issues church leaders face in the course of an average week. Sermon preparation, staff meetings, time management, money issues, hiring and firing, books they're reading, and much more. Thank you for being with us today, and here's your host, Ed Dunnington. Welcome back. Um, I've got uh, Mark Dalby here with us on uh, our podcast today, and uh, we've been talking about theological education and and the, the changes that we've seen both uh, in theological education, but then also in the students and in our denomination uh, over the, the time that he has been serving at Covenant Seminary. Uh, Mark, you know, one of the things I thought would be good for us to, uh, to talk about and kind of um, explore is is as you all have been experiencing the pandemic as, uh, as the seminary, what, what are some of the ways that COVID-19 has forced you all to change um, what you're doing and, and what opportunities have kind of come out of that that you all weren't anticipating? You know, one of the examples I use is a good friend um, started having Tuesday lunch discussions about the sermon, which was something that they did early on in their church plant, but they would do it after the service. But once they started having two services, they couldn't do that. And, you know, his comment to me was, and I think, I think that's probably something we're going to keep doing even, you know, once we, we come back to worship because it's getting a lot of good traction and folks feel like they're really able to engage in a way that they haven't been able to for years. Mm-hmm. Have you all f- kind of stumbled into some of those kinds of things? Yeah, I think COVID has um, been a huge challenge to all of us um, in theological education where you're primarily a residential campus and you have to suddenly go to all online. That was just a huge challenge. And we, we, uh, you know, when your faculty's still learning, I mean, in, in God's providence, I mean, we've celebrated the fact that we made some changes two and a half years ago now, where, where we are uh, offering a hybrid MDiv where you can take two thirds of it online and one third by intensives, more like a doctor of ministry without moving to St. Louis. Right. Um, and we've equipped classrooms to be able to, to, to do better uh, recording. And we've, We've been learning how to bring our ethos into the discussion aspects of the online learning community. So we, we, we were on that track. This just put us <clears throat> there in a fast forward sort of way. I, I like to right. see how do I convince the faculty that they virtually all of them need to learn how to bring who they are, what they teach, the ethos of the seminary into the online learning community. How can I get them all to have to experience that? Well, right. COVID-19 did that for us. Okay. <laughs> I don't have to spend relational capital to get them to do that. Right. Okay. They have had to do that. And then one of the blessings that's happened to us is, is with faculty meetings. And we meet once a week on Wednesdays for an hour and a half throughout the regular school, you know, first and second semester. And we spend a half hour praying and then we interact and hear reports and do different things. Well, we've, we had to go to online faculty meetings, Zoom meetings, and they were almost all always there, even if they were on sabbatical. And we've had some over the summer that have been really good and people, they've shared how they've struggled with some things. And so they're sharing what they've learned in, in, in the teaching 
pedagogy is, is uh, you know, we've talked forever about flipped classrooms. How can you get students to get good quality recordings and bite-sized pieces before they come to class and use the class time with the professor physically present to talk through, discuss, answer questions, think of case studies to apply it to. Well, we've had to do some of that now. So some of that will likely continue. It will affect our pedagogy, I think, in some helpful ways. And I think the faculty is learning how to encourage and, and help each other um, in these Zoom meetings. Um, it, it won't replace faculty meetings. We'll love being back together. But we now have a tool we can use to supplement the norm that can be, I think, very effective and helpful. Um, that if we're over a summer break is a long time without a faculty meeting, or if we're over from you know Christmas to February, we'll be able to we'll be able to be together as a faculty in ways that we didn't didn't used to be. So that's one good thing, I think. And is that because now folks just have more comfort level with doing that kind of stuff remotely? Right. And yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, that's a big part of it. Um, I think for us, we're you know we had the same thing with board meeting. We had a board meeting in April that was um, via Zoom. And when all the board members and advisory board members are there and administrators that are at the meeting, we're, we're over 50 people. So there's no way we're gonna, normally our board meeting, you come, you know, we have some initial things, we break for committees, we come back. Um, we did all the committee work by Zoom ahead of time. So, and we had a much, we had an abridged, we had a three hour meeting and, you know, and right. we were able to get things done that needed to be done. And so I think our board meetings will be more, we'll make use of Zoom in advance of the meetings for committees mm. to do their work and then use the time together for more strategic discussions and that sort of thing. So, and we may even have one Zoom meeting a year of our three. Right, right. So I think there, it, it, it right now it's, horrible because we can't do any of the things that we most want to do. And part of the reason this works is because we did do things in person before. Right. Um, but one of the, but one of the ways forward may be to make more use of technology to our benefit in efficient and strategic ways so that we make better use of the time when we are together in person. Sometimes in academic institutions, there's a bit of a gap between the business part of the seminary, the, advancement part of the seminary and the academic part of the seminary. And what I established a COVID-19 team right at the beginning with, and, and we're together in, you know, the president's cabinet. So, but right. I brought in the IT people and the physical plant people and various ones. So there's what's happened in this season as we've done different modeling is people have come to appreciate and value other parts of the institution and mm. how it intersects with their part. And we've been able to have much more open, honest, I'm going to give you my input because you need to hear it because we're trying to right. solve for COVID. What are we right. going to do this fall and so on? So I think that will continue, that we found ways to team that isn't just a few people dominating. Right. It's everybody's right. So the collaborative nature of what we do, I think, has been enhanced not because of the technology side, but just because of the challenge and the uncertainties related to COVID. Right. All of the, right. Having to, to create all the contingencies has forced more engagement from folks that may yeah. not have been at the table uh, yeah. prior. That, that makes sense. Well, that's great. Well, now, you know, it, you've been a part of 
of training for a number of years for training kind of pastors. What do you believe our churches need from her leaders uh, as we move into the middle part of the 21st century? Um, I mean, we've been talking about some of these things, but um, as you think, um, you know, the next question we'll have will be about the transition at the seminary. But I mean, as you think beyond your time at the seminary and you think the next 45 years, Lord willing, of the PCA, um, where do you see, what do you see the needs of the local church and and, and what do they need in their leaders as we think that way? Well, I think um, first and foremost and above everything else is the church needs in its leaders, leaders who are humble, understand and experience the gospel in a deep way, who are committed to a gospel-centered ministry from the depths of their own heart, with a passion to see other people equipped Mm. to use and exercise their gifts both in the church and in a way that has the world and the culture in view. Um, I think the church has, I think the enemy uses very gifted people with strong personalities. God uses, despite themselves sometimes, uses people with great gifts and strong personalities to make an impact. But then the enemy comes along and seems to work in a way that leaders then make it less about the gospel and more about and less about Christ's kingdom and more about their own. It's subtle, it's mixed, but it's devastating to the church. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I was having a conversation last night with uh, a couple of my children about, you know, what is a hero leader, dad? How, we, you know, what do you mean by that, that phrase, a, a, um, a hero leader? And, um, you know, talking about not leading out of your personality is like, what's wrong with that? Right. And now this is one of my children who, who could lead very strongly and clearly in that way. And, um, you know, and I always come back to if, if Jesus statement about John the Baptist, right. I mean, that, that he, <laughs> that there hasn't been, uh, a, a, you know, a greater human representation of what it looks like to be conformed to the image <laughs> of, of the Messiah. Um, and he gladly gave yep. away, I mean, you know, Jesus shows up and he goes, that's who I've been telling you about the whole time. You need to go follow him. Mm-hmm. And I just said to my, you know, to my son, I said, Reflect on how significant that is. A, a leader who says someone else must increase and I must decrease. Right. That's huge. And I, 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 a lot of people my age, I'm 68. I've seen this for a while. It's like they've had, God has used them in great ways. They've had significant ministries. Um, and they begin to think about what's most important in their latter years is their legacy. It's never about our legacy. The legacy is Christ. Right. What remains when I'm gone is not what I did and how I did it. What remains when I am gone is the impact Christ has made through me. And that's what continues. Whether the, I mean, I said when I first became 
president. And it, it's, it's easier for me because I'm not the, you know, the preacher in demand and large charismatic personality and all that sort of thing. And I've had to push the certain parts of my personality to be, to lead uh, more that way. Not, not that way, but to bring some of that right out because I'm a pretty reluctant leader when it comes to some of that. Um, and you can't be president and be a reluctant leader. Right. But at the same time, you know, I, what I said is I'm hoping that 20 years from now, God will have worked during the time I was president in a way that people look back and say, you know, some really good things happened back there. Like, what was that president's name? I can't remember his name. <laughs> I mean, I would be thrilled if that were the case. That's right. In some great ways, but we can't remember the guy's name. Okay. That's right. And I think that's that heart. Now, now you don't you don't lead to make sure they don't remember you. I mean, that's right. not the goal. But it's the right. if the goal is Christ, um, and that's one of the things I'm doing right now. I know you want to talk about the transition in a minute, but I told my leadership team a year ago, um, I'll be here probably two more years. I've asked the board to start doing a search. Uh, talk through, you know, succession. I said, so over these next two years, one of the things that has to happen before the new guy comes is I must decrease and you all must increase in your areas of responsibility and, and stepping up and, and taking us forward. And that's the best thing I can do for the next guy who will come. So I think humble, strong gospel leaders who equip others um, delight in the gifts of others, aren't, aren't uh, you know, jealous of them or threatened by them, um, who model a deep need for the gospel. I, need the, I know I need the gospel more now than I knew I needed in previous years in my life. Right. And to lead from that posture is not a sign of, of weakness. It's actually where the Lord's strength can come through. Right. Well, and that's, you know, you have, have uh, mentioned it already. And I think it, one of the things probably most practical, practically relevant to many of our listeners, just because of the age of our denomination is this whole issue of succession planning. Yes. And, and, you know, you all are in that process right now. And those were great words, I think of, of, you know, in terms of the preparation process and, and, and it seems as though good succession plans um, or the, the better they go is, humanly speaking, is really largely in part due to the preparation on the front end. <laughs> um, and, you know, we obviously here at, the sem- at, 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 um, at RBI have recently gone through a transition and, and we were in a meeting recently where there was an opportunity to really celebrate the staff's response to the transition, right? And what was said was this transition went, went so smoothly one because of Gary's character and his integrity, Gary Campbell, who was the former president. Uh, I said, but the second thing that made this go so well is that there was real support and buy-in from the staff about this change, mm-hmm. which Right. There was a lot of pre-work that went into that, which is what you were just doing with your with, with that senior uh, cabinet that, look, you all need to to continue to grow and I think grow in such a way that when this transition comes, you are fully embracing the transition and ultimately fully embracing the next leader that the Lord has for for the seminary. Yes, exactly. And I think that um, one of the reasons for that is 
um, to be a seminary president at a Reformed and Presbyterian seminary, that's the denominational seminary. Um, the pool of people who have already had that experience basically doesn't exist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now you might be able to somebody from another Reformed seminary that's been a president wants to be here. So the learning curve will be steep. Right. And there are certain, um, you know, my, my pastor at Chesterfield Church, Hugh Barletts, who's on the search committee, said, you know, there are about eight things that a next president needs to be adequate and sufficient in. Okay, he can't be inadequate in any of them. That's right. But there's going to be four or five he needs to be really strong in. Absolutely. be a different four or five than I have or what Brian had, or what Paul Koistra had, or what Will Barker had, or what Dr. Rayburn had. Right. Um, what does a seminary need now? So those areas that it's adequate, you need other people around you who are strong in it. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I'm trying to do in this leadership team is have people who are, the next president may decide to shake up the organizational thing and bring different people in over time. But the first year or two, the people that will be his key supporters and leaders and coaches and equipping of him to understand the complexity of theological education as, as an institution. So I, you know, I've got a few people in this process that are, you know, they're being asked, do you want to apply for this and begin to go through a process? And so I've, got se I've gotten several calls from some of them that want to find out a little bit more before they say yes or no to that. Right. And, and it's been a delight to be able to say, if you would become the next president, the team that is here is just an outstanding team. Right. And you can come in and bring everything that you bring that's not here right now because you're not here. But you can lean on people and grow and learn from people that are here. And I think that's, that's a good place to be. And the other thing, I, you know, I, I turned 60 um, the year right before I became interim president in 2012. And uh, I told the board, I said, you may not have me this as long as I'm about to tell you, but you won't have me more than 10 years because I don't right. think that would be good for me or good for the seminary. Now, when you're 60, you think more that way than when you're 50. Right. That's a, that's a contextual thing for me. Um, and then when I turned about two years ago, <clears throat> my annual review, a little over two years now, I said, um, I think it's time for us to start talking about a succession plan. Um, I'm not looking to go away. Um, and as I told you, I'm willing to stay here till I'm 70. Um, but I think we need to begin that process now. And so, you know, they, they formed a committee that was a succession team, not a search team. Initially, right. it's the one that would become and now is a search team. And we, they've done institutional assessment across all the constituencies to just try to find out where things are and what's important to the community. And, um, and then, you know, they've got a good consultant working with them and they, um, they're now beginning to take some names and they've now, you know, got a timeline that if it works well next July, at the end of our fiscal year, um, there'll be a transition between me and the next person. And I am so excited about the process, about who's on the committee, about their way, the way they're going about it, their desire to hear from me. But I'm also, I'm at the point where I, I don't initiate anything 
in relationship to the presidential search. Right. I only respond. Right. And I think that's the right um, position to be in. And so anytime I get worried about who my successor will be, I just rehearse to myself the eight people on the search committee, five board members, three faculty members, and I say, it'll be fine. That's right. It is. That's so right. I, I have a freedom. Now, who are the who are the eight that are on that that search committee, um, so that our listeners can be praying for them during this yes. time? The the five board members are Sam Graham, who's a ruling elder from Independent Press in Memphis. He's the chair. Uh, Frank Wicks, who's a ruling elder also in a, uh, here in St. Louis. Uh, Hugh Barlett, uh, teaching elder at Chesterfield in St. Louis. Bob Flayhart, <laughs> who's a TE in Birmingham. And uh, John Harrelson, who's a TE yeah. in Seattle. And then Jay Scalar, VP of Academics, is on the committee. Yeah. Uh, Suzanne Bates, okay. uh, our uh, a counseling professor, um, African-American, wonderful, wonderful woman that will bring all kinds of insights into this. Um, and then Mark Ryan, who's the director of our Francis Schaefer Institute. Those are Absolutely. the eight, eight people. And um, they're, doing, they're doing a great job. Um, Oh, what a great, that is a great committee. It really is. Yeah. That's a great committee. Yeah. Well, we need to be praying for them. And, you know, it does, you realize that one of the things, I mean, I think a lot of our churches are in this season where transition is upon them and, and some of them are struggling to think through it. I mean, what, what have you, have you all had resources that you found to be helpful in preparation for the succession plan? Or has it been more rooted in just, I think you all trying to be um, thoughtful and reflective? You know, as you talk, Mark, one of the things that I'm struck with is it, it requires that senior leader to have, um, have a posture of this is not my thing. And, and my role is, is ultimately to serve the institution. And, and I, if, if it's time for me to go, then it's time for me to go. And I, you know, um, you know, even your point, it's not good for me. It's not good for the, for, for the, um, the institution for me to stay beyond age 70. I think there, I mean, that's both hard and wise, right? <laughs> well, I think the kind of things we're talking about now are particularly true when the senior leader is moving toward retirement. Right. It's harder to do that when someone is, you know, called from one church to another or something like that. Right. There's some principles that apply in terms about the way, even someone who's called to another church that's a beloved pastor may still have too much of a hand in who his successor will be too. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to not listen, but you don't want to be beholden to. Right. So I think, um, you know, for me, some of the, some of the dynamics are um, there's, well, the committee. Yeah. I mean, basically they spent part of it is giving enough time in advance for it to be a succession discussion before it's a search discussion. Right. Um, and think in principle rather than in people. Right. And come up with the priorities of things that you feel you need um, and get that worked out with lots of input across the constituencies of the church or the institution. Then um, 
you know, I think you're, I do think, I think consultants can be very helpful in this. Um, and, you know, the seminary has a consultant that has a person on it that is, has experience in leadership in seminaries and, and that sort of thing. And is, you know, there's a, they identify what they want them to search toward and then they try to narrow it down and give people they think any one of these could be good. Now you take, you know, begin to the interview process from here. So everybody does a little different something, but I think the, especially if it's a retirement, the lead time and then the opportunity to be fully supportive of the process and a responder and not an initiator. I think that's a key thing. I mean, I knew the consultants were going to ask me for some names and I deliberately not been thinking about names. Okay. So I wrote a few down that, you know, if they were, if they asked me that question, if they didn't ask me that question, I wasn't going to give them any. Right. But they asked me who I thought might be good. So I was ready. Right. If a candidate calls me, I think it's wise to call the current president. If you're considering whether or not you should do this. That's right. So for those three listeners that are on that list, this is an encouragement for you to call Mark. <laughs> um, we don't know who you are. We're just saying that, that there's wisdom in calling Mark. <laughs> and, then, and then if you stay around, I mean, again, I put it this way. I said to the board in January when it was announced that you know, all this was going forward, <clears throat> I said, if I have an ongoing, I may have an ongoing role at the seminary that has nothing to do with the president. I may teach a class, you know, I may have a portfolio of donors or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but if I have a relationship to the president, um, it needs to own, it can only work if three parties agree, each one has veto power. Me, the new president and the board. If anyone doesn't think it's a good idea, I need to willfully say, if I'm one that thinks it is, not gonna happen. So I'm saying that up front. And I said, oh, by the way, whatever fancy title you might wanna give me, as the outgoing president, the only title I will accept if it relates to the new president is assistant to the president. It needs to describe what the position is, positionally and functionally. So I think that's, again, part of it is, is coming to grips with, I've had my chance and I can, I only want to be helpful to something that Will, will necessarily look different under another person's leadership. And my prayer is that I've invested in a way that some of these things I outlined, there are four or five things that have been, I think we've made gains on. I have to trust that, that the committee and the faculty when they interview the candidate and so on, though that's in our DNA. It's not just because Mark wanted it. It needs to be in the seminary DNA. And if it isn't, then Mark can't push it when he's leaving. That's right. Well, and you know, it's even as we talked about your time at, at Covenant, when you stepped in as that interim president, there was so much of that institutional stuff that, that you had already been participating in for over a decade, right? So unless, right, the next president is an internal, right, um, selection, if it's somebody from the outside, they're, they're going to have to rely heavily on that, on those cabinet uh, positions, right. Right. Be, because that 
they're not going to come in with 14 years, right, or 13 years of of presence in in the institution and going through the you know the board meetings and right, and maybe not even in higher education. Right, that's right. So, so yeah. That's well, well, that's what an exciting time, both for you, for the seminary um, and, and the future for our, for our denomination. That's um, thank you for, for sharing that. If you are a PCA pastor, what should your compensation package look like? It's a question we frequently get at PCA Retirement and Benefits, better known as RBI. That's why RBI has put together our call package guidelines. In this booklet, you'll find over 40 pages of insights to help you consider how to structure and evaluate compensation packages for church employees. Simply go to PCARBI.org forward slash compensation and get the latest version of our call package guidelines. Once again, visit PCARBI.org forward slash compensation. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I've got, uh, you know, um, one of the things I, I do want to ask you about uh, before we kind of move to our, our final series of questions is in your role, I mean, obviously there's, there's tons of demands on your time prior to COVID-19, you did a lot of travel um, and, and you and I've talked about some of these things and I've found your answers to these kinds of questions helpful. But um, as you think about self-care and kind of your own rhythms, what are some of the things that you have done uh, that, that, have been helpful practices for your own self-care and, and what have you found most challenging to kind of preserving those in your rhythms, right? I mean, uh, every role, particularly a senior leader role, whether it's the president of a seminary or the senior pastor of a church or um, the, the youth leader, every leadership position has um, unique challenges in them right. that that we, we have to be really intentional to fight for self-care. What, what have you found in your role as president that have been the biggest challenges to your self-care and what are the, your self-care practices? Yeah, I think the biggest challenges I, I shared with the board um, in uh, April, uh, just as COVID had come upon us, um, that in some ways I can mark my eight, now eight plus years in the presidency counting the interim year as five crises okay there was the initial transition of leadership was was not an easy one the financial crisis that we didn't realize we were in because we didn't have alternatives to coming to st louis the crisis of an educational model that would be uh, more accessible and more flexible and more affordable for students to get what we have without coming here that was a major shift in our mindset the external attacks leading up to last year's GA, which included an overture to no longer have us be the denominational seminary. Right. Um, and now I'm thinking I get to take this last lap, <laughs> waving a bit, you know, and maybe pandering right. and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden COVID hits. I was supposed to have an eight week sabbatical this summer, <laughs> but I'd only be available for crises. Right. And COVID was an eight, is an eight week crisis at least. Yeah. So I think the challenge has been how then do I get self care in the midst of what seems to be the, um, the unusual became usual. Now we all have different kinds of crises and have right. to manage them, but I think that does sort of mark my presidency to some degree. Um, so how do I find that in the ebb and flow of the day to day in terms of self care? 
um, right before I became president as I was approaching age 60 and was about 30 pounds overweight. Uh, I played basketball in college and I had a high metabolism. I never really struggled with weight, could eat anything I wanted. And then, you know, in my fifties, that didn't keep happening. Right. So I decided I needed to lose weight and start exercising. So I just did low carb, low sugar. I lost 30 pounds and I, I've been running anywhere from 15 to 20 miles a week for the last nine, 10 years. Um, and that's, that's been the exercise and the right healthy eating has been important to, um, as a discipline. I mean, it's, it's healthy eating is almost a kind, has almost a built-in kind of fasting. I'm, yes, watching the, does. I'm watching the Cardinals game. <laughs> this is my typical evening when a Cardinal game is on. I get a Coke, 39 grams of sugar. You know, I have um, ice cream, you know, 30 grams of sugar. And then I love popsicles, you know, the freezer pops, you cut off the end. Oh, and yeah. I, I'll cut off two at a time and go, I only would freeze 10. I was really disciplined. I'd only freeze 10. So I wouldn't eat more than 10 in a day. And that's, <laughs> that's just like drinking, you know, 15 ounces of Kool-Aid. Yeah. With right. sugar at about 70. Okay. Right. So I exchanged, <laughs> this is my biggest change in my habit in the evening. I did none of that. You know, I, I call myself a popsicle addict, you know, I'm addict, hi, I'm Mark and, Right. Recovering. I, uh, yeah, recovering, yeah. So I exchanged it for popcorn and a four-ounce glass of red wine. And I lost weight. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was watching sugar and carbs in other ways, too. Right. But it's, it's like, I'm not hungry. I'm anxious. Right. And so I shouldn't eat because I'm anxious. I don't need food. I need God. Right. So part of it was a, there was a kind of fasting principle related to dieting. Yes. And then the exercise for me became meditative time. You know, when I'm two miles into a five mile run, I'm, you know, I'm in a zone of sort of openness to God and I would pray and sing and listen to scripture. And the next big thing that's coming, I'm asking God to help me show me you know, i would dictate some things to siri you know and the notes of my iphone at times so i wouldn't lose good ideas but a lot of a lot of the um clearing of my mind assessing of where things are crying out to god lamenting things that aren't the way they should be asking him to show me my sin that i need to repent of that was happening when i was on long runs mm. so that that became uh, and that all happened you know the year before I became, uh, within a year of when I became interim president. And somebody like Bob Yarborough, um, our New Testament professor, who was also a, a, a runner and, and in great shape at 62 or whatever he is, he said, Mark, as I reflect on your first couple of years in the presidency, if you hadn't already been doing the exercise and the, and the right kind of eating you were doing, I don't know how you would have made it through. Mm. And I think he was right. Right. Um, so healthy eating, exercise. Beth and I, all through our marriage, have taken long walks and talked together. And I find even if we're struggling with some things, there's something about walking side by side and having a conversation that can have some silent time compared to sitting face to face. And if no one's talking, it builds anxiety. Right. So there's something about the exercise of walking and talking through things and listening to each other. And you can always extend your walk to, you know, keep it going. Right. Or whatever. 
I, when I get up and the neuroscience of that's actually present too, right? The, the, um, all of the, everything going on in the brain, all the research says actually that, uh, two people, if they're walking, then if even there's physical touch. So even if there's a you know, occasionally going and and holding each other's hand that it actually, it's, it's rewiring the brain in, in healthier ways. So what, you know, what you said there, and and then I want to play, I want, um, you're, you still saying some other things. So I want you to please continue. But as you were talking, it makes me think about how, uh, what you're really saying is th- our theological convictions <laughs> about, all right, embodied souls. It, it really is. It's true. It's whole person. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's the, the combination of the run and the eat. I mean, it's so much of what was happening deep in my soul related to these practices that were physical. Um, and I, you know, I, I journal some, I particularly more of it was happening when I was running. Right. You know, I, I get, I'm an early riser. Beth's not as early as me. And so I know I have some time each morning um, to myself. Um, I've made it, you know, I haven't fully gotten into these different, like the Benedictine order adjusted for reform people or whatever, but there are certain household practices that were part of the orders of, of the monks and so on that, for me, it's um, whatever, you know, I, part of my morning routine is doing the dishes and loading the dishwasher, making coffee, a smoothie for Beth, you know, for when she gets up. So that, that's part of it as well. And I do it, be, it it's a, it's a joyful thing, not a begrudging thing right. in the way that the Lord weaves that into the day-to-day um, time, time together. For me, another thing is, making sure I have sufficient time with grandchildren or mm-hmm. I'm totally entering their world, which is the one thing that most separates me from the pressures and anxieties of my world. Mm. It's like, you know, if, if a grandchild or the little one wants to play hide and seek and you're saying, well, wait a minute, I got to check my email. I mean, they have no concept of why I would need to check my email. So the cell phone goes away and you just fully enter into hide and seek. Right. Those are, those are fun, refreshing, renewing kinds of things, again, that aren't, you know, they love to have me pick them up and do this little hickory dickory dock thing, you know, and sh- this clock struck one and I go boing and shake them and they giggle and then I put them down. I mean, it's like, again, there's a lot of physicality to that in a healthy right. way that is, it may tire you out but it's renewing and refreshing and gives perspective right. on other aspects of my calling. So. One of my, one of my regular phrases is um, my body's exhausted, but my soul is full. Yeah. Right? It's a good tired. Yeah. And yeah. And I think that's, I think there's particularly the older we get and um, there, there's more of that Lord willing, right. My, my body's, my body's exhausted, but my, my soul is full. Right. And Beth, Beth reads scripture each evening. I have to put these mm-hmm. ointment things in my eyes and I can't read. So she reads scripture. We pray together and that's been a 45 year thing for us. So. Oh, that's great. So what do you guys, what do you all love doing in St. Louis? You know, what um, that's, that's uniquely St. Louis. We love going to forest park, which is a beautiful park um, toward the city. It's actually a larger space than um, central park. Central park. Mm-hmm the 1904 
World's Fair and Olympics were both there at the time. So it's a great place to go and walk. We, we've done some biking on the Katy Trail. We haven't done as much of that recently. Um, but we, uh, you know, we, we love, you know, Ted Drew's is a St. Louis thing, you know, the, yeah. the, uh, the, the, uh, gives you your custom. sugar for a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do that selectively. Yeah. As, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so those are, those are a few, we love the Cardinals. I'm a Steeler fan yeah. and a Cardinal fan. Okay. Uh, we were in Pittsburgh in the seventies when they won four Super Bowls and, mm-hmm. So that's a that's a lifelong Steeler Nation and Cardinal Nation. So yeah. two pretty good franchises. I about to say I, you can pick worse. So um, so yeah. Well, uh, Mark, uh, um, you know one of the things we do we like to end every episode with asking our guests four questions. So we ask the same uh, four questions of every guest. And so as we come to a close, these are on a much lighter note. And so I'll just read them out and uh, feel free to to answer them. However, okay. If you could force every church leader in the PCA to read one book other than the Bible, what would it be? How many people have given you only one book? <laughs> <laughs> I've got it down to about five. Right. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of this, this may be a little surprising, but to me, um, for the PCA to be all that it needs to be, we need to have a right understanding of the biblical framework of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So right. I would recommend Far as the Curse is Found by Mike Williams mm. as uh, toward the top. I mean, I, th- I think you know, knowing God in terms of um, going back and reading that again, however many times you may have read it, uh, good book. Um, I think... Um, one of the books that's really helped me understand the relationship between the proclamation of the gospel and the living out of the gospel is Harvey Kahn's little book called Evangelism, um, Doing Justice and Preaching Grace. Hmm. And he has this thing in there about the biblical concept of the righteous deed as being, um, you know, justice for people. And, and I think that that's a very timely book now, even though it's been, uh, it's, it was written a long time ago um, yeah. in that regard. I think True Spirituality by Schaefer, uh, where that you- Is you, a gem. Is, I'd probably put that one second or right, right. up there with, with Williams. Right. And there's a book out right now to the question of the kind of leaders we need, which is this one, When Narcissism Comes to Church. I don't know how to put that in front of the camera. Just really? Who wrote uh, that? It's by Chuck DeGroat, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. This is a huge thing. And- Covenant Seminary's counseling program is is wonderful, and we it's the second we have more more students in that than any other degree except the MDiv. Hmm. At the end of a long day of serving there at the seminary, what is your guilty pleasure food? Buttered popcorn and red wine. <laughs> You've changed. See, How you good used is that? to be a popsicleaholic, and now you, you have changed your tastes. That's that's you a know, testimony. It used to be Coke, ice cream, and, and popsicles. Yeah. But, so the, can, the thing that was far better for me is now my, you know, it's hardly a guilty pleasure. It's a healthy pleasure. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, what is your uh, favorite location of General Assembly that you've attended? No, I enjoyed Virginia Beach. 
Mm. Um, what, wasn't it Virginia Beach we went to? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I also enjoyed Chattanooga. For some reason, those two sort of jump out. Um, and I think part of it was uh, I had at, at Virginia Beach, um, we, they did, there were two of the workshop things or seminars that were led. <clears throat> there were some people from Westminster and RTS and Covenant. So Mike Williams and Bob Yarborough came down to speak. It was about inerrancy and a book came out of it. So I roomed with Yarborough for the first couple nights while he was there. And then I roomed with Williams the last couple nights. And uh, that was just a privilege. And it was, I don't, I don't remember the issues of that day, but that sort of stands out. And Chattanooga, I think, was one where I did a lot of running and went, you know, across that that bridge and bridge, and I don't know how far I went and so on, and um, you know, stayed in the haunted hotel and all that sort of thing there downtown. Yeah. Oh wow. All right. So I think I probably know the answer to this, but I could not. Um, what's a uh, your hobby or favorite activity? Uh, to do to relax and get your mind off ministry? Um, I would say grandchildren, running, and golf. I didn't realize that you played golf. I do. I haven't much lately, but of course, not everybody's been playing golf lately. But <laughs> I find it enjoyable and relaxed. I, I golfed with my son a couple weeks ago, and that was just, especially if it's someone I, I can get too competitive with myself with golf. Right in an unhealthy way but if i'm with somebody i really enjoy being with and it's more about being with them and enjoying the golf courses are enjoyable places to be typically they are there's there's challenge and reward and enough challenge you keep coming back that's so uh during the pandemic uh all all of my children's plans for the summer were blown up and so uh stephanie and i talked and i said you know what our oldest two are 17 and 19. They're probably at a good place. We've never really had golf lessons, right? You can social distance and play golf. And so um, I, they had lessons this uh, this summer and, and we have been going out um, a couple times, a handful of times. And in the evenings after dinner, just playing nine together. And it's been, it's been a real delight, a, a real treat to just, have that time with some of my children. And, um, sometimes we, you know, folks take it too seriously. And most of the time we're just laughing and trying to encourage each other. So, so you, you enjoy golf. I am not good, um, at all and really didn't grow up playing. My dad didn't play. And so I, in fact, this summer I've taken some lessons with my, my boys. Uh, and, and it's a game that I, because of, their age and thinking in the years ahead, um, I, I want to be able to do some things with them. Yeah. And so golf's one of those kinds of activities that Lord willing, when they're in their job or whatever, and I come visit them, we can find a golf course and right. play. And if, if the weather's nice. So and you all have the RBI golf thing too, don't you? We do. So every GA. So in fact, I was talking to uh, Phil Valkenberg this morning about it. So uh, as we think about where to play in St. Louis, 
That's one thing I'm looking forward to at GA, not being the president of Covenant Seminary is being able to, <laughs> to join your golf thing. <laughs> to be able to have fun. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, man, Ranheim did a great job last time with all of the, with the folks that they brought and had them participate. I'm so glad that that worked. And um, it reinforced, I think we need to make some changes consciously about GA in terms of the scheduling to make sure that Everybody who wants to participate is able to participate in the golf tournament. So it may mean that we change some of our committee commissioners and, you know, or that um, juggle those around. But anyhow, that's not what this conversation is about. So, um, well, Mark, thank you so much uh, for uh, the time this afternoon. And really more than that, thank you for your years of faithful ministry. Uh, It's really exciting to hear. what the Lord is doing at covenant. And I'm, I'm excited to see what uh, the Lord has in store, not just for covenant, but for you in the the years ahead, as um, you hand the baton to, uh, to the next man and the Lord continues to do his work at covenant. So thank you so much for the time. It's been enjoyable. Yeah. And uh, I want to thank you for listening to the PCA Church Leader podcast. And thanks again uh, to PCA Retirement Benefits for sponsoring the show. As I said before, you can find past episodes of the show on iTunes. Uh, And if you would help us out and make sure that our... um, that we're doing the best job we can. Leave us a a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'll be back next week with another episode and an all new guest. I'm Ed Dunnington and we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by PCA Retirement and Benefits, Inc., known to many as RBI. RBI helps church workers and their families reach their financial goals. The financial planners at RBI sit down with pastors and church staff to examine their compensation and retirement contributions. They assemble plans that help pastors get on track and stay on track for a successful retirement. You don't have to be an ordained pastor to benefit from their services. They work with youth directors, worship leaders, administrative staff, Christian schools, and others providing free financial services. Their representatives have all worked in church settings and are able to relate to church staff members and their families. You can visit us at pcarbi.org to learn more about how RBI can help you and your family.